Well, I'm getting very excited because we are going to finish, or not finish, but come very close to finishing Luke chapter 23. And then we'll finish Luke chapter 24 over March and April, Lord willing. And so we'll get to to finish Luke right about the time we celebrate yearly the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And how awesome is it, at least it is to me, that this year on Easter um, is April Fool's Day. Um, otherwise known as National Atheist Day because God says in His Word, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And what a wonderful thing to be able to share the truth of the resurrection. We should do it every day. But especially around this time of year to be able to share the truth of the resurrection at a time when God is so readily shunned but so badly needed. So I'm excited about that eventuality and um, so we will enjoy that together and then Lord willing we will plunge into Luke's second um, book the book of Acts Luke is a very detailed writer and I've always wanted to study these books side by side I've never actually counted the verses but I've read that by verse count by word count, Luke actually wrote uh, the majority of the New Testament. Because if you put Luke and Acts together, it's bigger than the amount of writing that Paul did on his epistles. Although those are important, don't get me wrong. But I just think that's pretty exciting to contemplate. Luke didn't leave very much guessing for us to do because he was so detailed. He wanted to put these things together. Remember we read that he wrote this for Theophilus so that he could have a true and accurate account of the things that had happened in the ministry of Jesus. Now, I don't know what the background of Theophilus was, but Jerry B. Jenkins, um, along with Tim LaHaye, wrote four novelizations about the Gospel writers. And his supposition was that Luke was a slave of Theophilus and that Theophilus saw his potential and gave him his freedom and paid for his medical training. And then that Luke, um, in part, led Theophilus to faith in Jesus. And that this was part of that journey. I, don't, I can't swear to it as historically accurate, but I, I really like that idea that this is why he's writing to Theophilus. And I do not believe, as many do, that this was a group of people. I believe it was one person. I believe he was writing to him for a specific purpose, and we all benefit from having what he wrote. So if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. Um, Luke chapter 23, we're going to start in verse 26. Of course, um, as we were ending last time, Jesus had just been sentenced to death. And um, I know my dad kind of uh, gives me a hard time about some of the places where I choose to stop every, every time in this study. But I kind of think of it like I'm a big fan of old-time radio. 
I have an app on my phone that I can listen to things like Dragnet and Fibber McGee and Molly and all that old stuff from the 40s and 50s. And I just, I feel like this is kind of like a serial. Like, what's going to happen next? This is a cliffhanger. So we're, we're back to the cliffhanger and we're going to see what happens in this next section. So let's read together um, Luke 23, 26-33. We're going to read about Simon of Cyrene. And I would encourage you, um, I have a podcast that I recorded last year for Good Friday called It Happened One Friday, where I wrote a, a first-person narrative of Simon of Cyrene. And I had a friend of mine who's an actor come in and read that for me. And I just encourage you to look that up and enjoy that um, because it was powerful for me, even though God um, helped me write it, it was still powerful for me to hear it, and uh, I think you'll enjoy that. But let's look at our passage of Scripture today. Um, again, Luke twenty-three twenty-six. All right. And as they led him away, they laid hold upon one Simon, a Cyrenian, coming out of the country that on him that and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. And there followed him a great company of people and of women which bewailed and lamented him. But Jesus turning to him said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For lo, the days are coming in which they shall say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bear, and the paps that never gave suck. They shall begin to say um, to the mountains, Fall on us, and the hills cover us. For if they do these things in a green tree, what shall be done in the dry? And there were also two other malefactors led with him to be put to death. And when they were come to the place, which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the male factors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. So we see in this passage a man named Simon. And as I said when I did my podcast, I did a little bit of historical research on Simon. Um, and the, the, the research that I came up with was that he was a Jew, um, mo that he was most likely a Jew in town celebrating the Passover. But he was from far away. I forget exactly where he was from. But it was a major journey for him to make this Passover journey, and quite possibly a once-in-a-lifetime journey to actually observe the Passover in Jerusalem. It was a big deal for him to be there. And we read in another passage that he was the father of Alexander and Rufus. And we'll talk a little bit, a little bit in a few minutes about why that's seemingly important. But the point being that he made a major sacrifice to be there. And all of a sudden, he's in the middle of the greatest drama to unfold in the history of mankind. 
there was a song by Ray Bolts, um, who sadly I can't wholeheartedly endorse anymore because he has chosen to embrace the homosexual lifestyle. But he wrote this awesome song called Watch the Lamb, which is basically um, the, the events of Passover, or the events of Good Friday through the eyes of Simon of Cyrene. And it, it supposed that he realized, as Jesus was hanging on the cross, that he was who he said he was. And we don't know that for sure, at least that he knew at that time. There's some indication in Paul's epistles that these people became believers, however. And, um, but it's an interesting thought to think that he was there when the Lamb of God took away the sin of the entire world. And it's also important for us to to know that he was compelled that he was compelled. They laid hold on him. This wasn't a choice that Simon made. He didn't step forward and say, I'll carry the cross. I don't think he wanted to be involved in this drama. But he did it anyway. And so then we see in a very interesting passage, and we, we see these women, they're lamenting Jesus. And of course, it's easy for us to think, after we saw the crowds in the, in the last time, saying, crucify him, crucify him. It's very, very easy to think that everybody wanted that, but I think there were, there were many that didn't. You know, if we look in the media today, it's the loud few that seem to rule over the quiet many. It's because we choose to follow the example of our master who says, um, whenever possible, live at peace with those around you. That's why we're not, or at least we should not be known for our volatility. Because we should be peaceful. But even peaceful people are persecuted, as we well know. I just started a book by the Bentham Brothers called Living Among Lions, and I'm just a few pages in, so I can't really say a whole lot about it, except that they listed on the first two pages like five people that had to change jobs because of their Christian faith, their being persecuted for their faith. Imagines bakers who had to close their business. And today, this guy that had a passion for baking is a trash collector. Because he was forced to lose his business. He talks about a firefighter that lost his business. I believe it's because he wrote a book for men in which he talked about the importance of traditional marriage. Loving your wife as Christ loved the church and spoke out against homosexuality and that was not allowed, even on his own time and in his own book, for him to be the police or the fire chief of his area. This is the world that we now find ourselves in, but these daughters of Jerusalem, whoever they are, it's quite possible, as was mentioned, that they could be professional mourners that someone hired to mourn for him because professional mourners were a reality back then. I'm not sure if I believe that, 
But what he's what 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 Jesus is talking about, at least according to the best of my research, is remember a, a few weeks ago we or a few months ago we talked about how he mentioned the destruction of Jerusalem. And he prophesied that in 70 AD Jerusalem would be destroyed by the Romans. Right now they're just kind of sitting there biding their time, but eventually they would um, destroy Jerusalem. And then later, Nero would burn Rome and blame the Christians. Kind of ironic, huh? But the point being that many scholars believe that this is another forecast of that time. He says, don't worry about me. I know what the end is going to be. Prepare for your end. And even though I know that this is slightly out of context, I can't help, when I read these verses, feel like this is the day that we're living in. Our society says, blessed are the barren. I know married couples, at least one married couple who claims to be Christians, who have no intention of ever having children. And we have embraced, even often as a church, a barrenness is good philosophy. And I'm sorry if you feel like I talk about this a lot, but it's something that's important to me and weighs on my heart all the time. So Jesus is saying that if they're doing, in a sense he's saying, if they're doing this to me, because he's kind of referring to himself as the green tree. If they're doing this to me, what are they going to do to you? And he's talking about them kind of as the dry tree. And then it says, and there were also two other male factors led with him to be put to death. Again, we talked last time how it's very, po very possible that Barabbas was supposed to occupy that center cross. But it was Jesus instead. And when they were come to a place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him in the male factors, one on the right hand and one on the left. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Think about that for a moment. How often have we said that about people that wrong us? Usually, even as believers, we want to make sure everybody knows who wronged us and that they get theirs. But Jesus is being nailed to a Roman cross for crimes he didn't commit by hands that he created. And he's yelling, and I'm sure some of the people who heard him yelling thought that maybe he was yelling for relief or yelling to be released, but instead they leaned forward and they heard him say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And I've heard some scholars say that he possibly said this repeatedly, that it wasn't just a one-time sentence, that he said it repeatedly because... He meant it. 
Remember, even Jesus prayed multiple times in the garden and said, take this cup from me, but nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And that's why we're here today. If he had said at any point, I'm done, he could have been done, but we would have been done too. And uh, I just want to read a couple verses, a couple more verses that kind of talk a little bit more about our friend Simon. First, Mark fifteen twenty one and twenty two. Mark 15, 21, and 22, if someone gets there, if they can read that. And then we'll follow that up with Mark 16, 13. They compelled one Simon, a Cyrenian, who passed by coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. And they bring him unto the place Golgotha, which is being interpreted as the place of his skull. So first of all, Mark assumes that the people reading his book know who Alexander and Rufus are. He said, Alexander and Rufus' father was the Simon who was compelled to carry Jesus' cross. Which means that it's very probable that they were among them as members of the early church. And we see further credence to that if you read Romans 16, 13. Romans 16, verse 13, if someone has that, if they could read that for us. Salute Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother and mine. So Paul is talking many people believe, and I see no reason to doubt it, about one of Simon's sons, and he says, Salute Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Which, first of all, isn't that a great phrase? Those of us who have been redeemed can say without a doubt, we were chosen in the Lord. And then Paul says something interesting. He says, Salute his mother and mine. So there must have been a sense in which Paul felt that Rufus' mother became his. Isn't it wonderful that God puts the solitary in families? That even if you have no living family, if you are in the family of God, you still have family. One of my favorite things about being in the brethren is that we routinely call each other brother and sister. We don't put a wall of separation between clergy and laity and all that stuff. We just simply call each other brother. What an amazing thing. And what an amazing thing that out of this darkness that was Simon carrying 
Jesus' cross to Calvary, that eventually he came to trust in the Christ of Calvary, and his sons did as well. And Mark says, you know these people. They're with us now. What an amazing thought. All right, so our second section. Jesus offers forgiveness, and I'm going to read verse 34 again, because it's so good. And then we'll see how Jesus' forgiveness works itself out. Because I love how when Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, his prayer was almost immediately answered. Because it wasn't just the soldiers nailing him to the cross. Guess who else? The thieves. The thieves were nailing him to the cross. You and I were nailing him to the cross. But the thieves that were there, it was their sin. It was the Roman soldier's sin that nailed him to the cross. So let's look at Luke 23, 34 to 43. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And again, we would do well to remember that, that when people wrong us, they often don't know what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. And the people stood beholding, and the rulers also with them derided him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he be the Christ, the chosen of God. Remember, Psalm 22 says, Many bowls of Bashan have surrounded me. They gnash at me with their teeth. These people that were gnashing at him with their teeth, they supposedly memorized Psalm 22. And they were the very thing that they read about all those years ago. And the people stood beholding, and the rulers also with them derided him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he be the Christ, the chosen of God. Do you, do you, do you, does it ever strike you that they acknowledge that he had saved other people? But they didn't stop to think that there might be a deeper reason why he wasn't saving himself. Some of these people had not been in the garden and fallen backwards when they said, we're seeking Jesus of Nazareth, and he said, I am. And they couldn't even stand up. And yet they still, as Peter said in Acts, crucified the Lord of life. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar, and saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. And a superscription also was written over him in the letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew, This is the king of the Jews. And one of the male factors that were hanged, railed on him, saying, If thou be the Christ, save thyself and us. But another answering rebuked him, saying, Dost thou not fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing amiss. 
And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into your kingdom. And Jesus said unto him the best words ever. I think this is one of my favorite verses in the whole book of Luke. Verily I say unto thee, today you will be with me in paradise. My friends, there's no such thing as purgatory. This man couldn't go to a holding cell where he could atone for his sins and then make heaven. Heaven or hell is today. One or the other. Two lines. Which line are you in? And this man also didn't have time to jump off the cross, do any good deeds. He didn't lead anybody to to Jesus. Although, I mean, I guess he might have been part of what led the centurion to make his declaration. But he didn't have time to do any, you know, we, we just saying give him your best to the master. And surely we should if we have the ability. But his best was simply acknowledging who Jesus was with a heart of belief. That was his best. And he gave it and it was accepted. And it was about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the earth until the ninth hour. And the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. Does it ever strike you that even though he had just uttered the words, My God, my God, Why hast thou forsaken me? He still said that he commanded his spirit into his father's hands. He still trusted the father that turned his face away. Now if that's not trust, I don't know what is. And we see here forgiveness. Forgiveness for the thieves. For the thief on the cross. If you read in Matthew, you'll find that both thieves, it says the thieves, not just the thief, the thieves that were crucified with him cast the same in his teeth. Meaning they were both mocking him, but at some point in the midst of the mockery, the one thief said, This man's not like us. Perhaps Jesus even looked at him. One of my other favorite passages we already passed was when Jesus looked directly at Peter. And when Peter made eye contact with Jesus, all he could do was run away and cry and weep bitter tears and beg for forgiveness. And of course he was restored. But I wonder if in the course of this realm that Jesus just looked over at this thief and communicated with his eyes, no matter what you do, I still love you. But whatever the reason, this thief passed from death to life in that moment. And one day, I will see him face to face and I will be able to talk to him in person about what that was like. And then... 
we see that even as he's dying, he gets the proper praise because Pilate, whether he did it because he was thinking about these things or whether he did it to mock the soldiers, because I guess there's a tradition in the Catholic faith that says that Pontius Pilate came to faith in Jesus. I'm not sure that that's true. He seemed to have remained a godless brute. But for whatever reason, he wrote this sign and it said, This is the king of the Jews. And when the Pharisees came to him and said, Right, he was. He said he was the king of the Jews. What did Pilate say? He said, What I have written, I have written. And uh, so even though he might have done it for, through altruistic motives, ulterior motives, I'm still glad he did. And then we, we again read this great proclamation of forgiveness. Again, he's hanging on a cross. And he's able to give these words. It kind of reminds me of Paul in the jail. He's in a he's probably in a mud cave and he's still writing, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. How do they do that? Only grace. Only grace. If we look at first Peter two, twenty to twenty-three, real quick. We see Jesus do this and we think it's impossible for us to, but we, we need to remember that Peter reminds us of this and tells us that we have an example that we need to follow. 1 Peter 2, 20-23. Who did no sin neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. There you have it. What did he say, what did he say when he died? When he breathed out his last, he said, Into thy hands I commit my spirit. And, um, Thomas Watson said this, Behold what manner of love is this, that Christ should be arraigned and we adorned, that the curse should be laid on his head and the crown set on ours. Do you know what? There's a verse in Revelation that talks about the four and twenty elders casting crowns at Jesus' feet. And I think we're going to be among that throng. Because there's nothing in me that deserves to wear a crown. Any crowns that I receive will be so that I have something, so that I don't come empty-handed, so that I have something to give to my Master. Because, I mean, eventually I'm going to run and jump and do all that crazy stuff, but before that, I'm probably going to do as John and fall on my face as dead before the one that's worthy. Because I'm certainly not. I'm a wicked man apart from the grace of God. 
So then we come to our final section of the day. Jesus dies on the cross. And again, I'm going to back up because I read a little bit ahead. Verse 44 says, And it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the earth until the ninth hour. Which I, I want to look up the New Testament word. I did not look this up. But I, I believe it's talking about the whole earth. And can you imagine? It's the middle of the day. Or, you know, the middle of the afternoon. Jesus died about 3 p.m. as give or take. Because Jewish days start at 6 a.m. And it was the ninth hour. And uh, can you imagine just being out in the sun and enjoying your day and all of a sudden it's pitch black. There was no in between the sun. It doesn't say the sun went down. It says darkness descended on the whole earth. Kind of remind me of when Jesus was on the sea and it was raging and it was storming and Jesus said, peace be still. And it was immediately calm. It didn't progressively get calm. We watch storms dissipate around us and they progressively calm. I've never seen a storm stop the way I'm pretty sure it stopped on the Sea of Galilee that day. Though I, I do find myself praying those verses during storms because I'm not a big fan. But um, what an amazing thing. I, I probably would have been scared during that time even if I did believe that Jesus was who he said he was. And none of the disciples were believing for the resurrection at that moment. They forsook him in the flood and they thought their lives were over. But it says, And the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. So the veil of the temple, separating the Holy of Holies from the other holy place, was rent, so we could have access. And then Jesus cried, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Remember we read in First Peter chapter 2, He committed himself to the one who judges righteously. You know what God judged? God judged that his sacrifice was adequate. All sufficient, actually. It wasn't just adequate. It was all sufficient to cover and take away our sins. Now when the centurion saw what was done, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. And all the people came together, beholding the sight and the things that were done, and smote their breasts in return. And all his queens and the women that followed him from Galilee stood afar off beholding these things. I want to make a couple comments. First of all, I believe it's Matthew. Um, and I might just look this up real quick. Matthew 27, I believe, is the passage that says, that he says, surely this was the Son of God. Let me check. Uh, yes, he says, it says, Now when the centurion and they that were with him were watching, Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done. 
they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. So he had two different um, declarations, perhaps minutes apart from each other. First he said, Certainly this was a righteous man. And then he said, Truly, this was the Son of God. And I wonder myself if that centurion was among the 500 that saw Jesus alive. They're not listed. But we're going to see them someday. And I just wonder if someone was able to share with him the complete gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe it was Cornelius after his conversion. Who knows? What I do know is that God, by his Spirit, led that declaration. Remember what God said to Peter, what Jesus said to Peter, when he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He said, flesh and blood haven't revealed this to you. But the Holy Spirit has revealed this to you. And it says, And all the people came together to the site, beholding the things that were done, and smote their breasts and returned. Now this seems to indicate, from what I've read, that there might have been some remorse on the part of some of these people. Now whether it was godly remorse that led to repentance, or whether it was simply remorse without repentance like Judas Iscariot, they were definitely thinking about some things. And then it talks about his acquaintance and the woman that followed him. Probably John was there as well. They stood afar off beholding these things. And tomorrow and next time we're going to learn about another man who secretly followed Jesus. And part of us again would probably tend to want to look down on him because he didn't speak up for Jesus in the Sanhedrin meetings, at least, that we know of, that we read about, Joseph of Arimathea. But he does make a very important um, gift to Jesus. A temporary dwelling for Jesus' body. Um... And I've no doubt that he was part of the New Testament church. But it just shows that none of us are perfect. But that God loves us anyway. Because if he didn't love the imperfect, then we'd all be out. But because he does, I'm right at the top of the list. Because he loves us so much. And he loves you. And if you... Read this story and all it is to you is to you a story and you have not experienced the power of the cross. But if you are with me standing at the foot of the cross today in awe of what we have witnessed, my prayer is that you have not only witnessed it, but you've experienced it for yourself. And you can say truly, this man was, and is, and always will be. For it says in Hebrews, Jesus is the same, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Nothing else in this world is that. I only live with four of my siblings now. Seven of my siblings have moved out. 
Six of my siblings have children. Many of them have multiple children. My family's just getting bigger and bigger. I love it. But it's true. And, and we're having a little bit of a hard time planning our family our, our extended family vacation because everybody has their own opinions. And hopefully eventually we'll get some more without killing each other. But the point <laughs> but the point being, things change. Our house is largely empty right now. But when they come home, there's more people than there was the last time they were home. Which is a great feeling. But everything changes. I'm going to be 39 years old in May. I don't stay young. But the one thing that stays the same is Jesus Christ. I'm so thankful for that. Now, um, I want to...